Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life, four things they cherish and one they loathe and would like to get rid of, that they would, if given the chance, put in a time capsule and bury. And as the title suggests, I give them that chance. My guest in this episode, I'm delighted to say, is the actor Simon Williams, who is probably best known these days for playing Justin Elliott, Lillian's latest partner, in the BBC's very long-running serial, The Archers, which may make this episode doubly interesting for any Archers fans, as I used to be Lillian's latest partner. And talking of latests, The Archers is just the latest act in Simon's extraordinary career. He was educated at Harrow, but that's not his fault. He first appeared on television in 1967 in Man in a Suitcase, but his big break came when he was offered the role of James Bellamy in the TV series Upstairs, Downstairs, appearing in 37 episodes over the next four years. He's been in loads of things since then. Here's a sample. Minder, Bergerac, Dangerfield, Dinner Ladies, Doctor Who, EastEnders, Heartbeat, Doctors, Kingdom, First Among Equals and Sir Charles Merrick in Holby City. He's been in the films The Prisoner of Zender and The Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu with Peter Sellers, as well as Jabberwocky, The Odd Job, Return of the Man from Uncle and Chariots of Fire, to name but a few. He was joint chairman of the Actors' Charitable Trust and still works tirelessly for that and several other charities. He's performed in a myriad of plays all over the world and has written quite a number of hit plays himself. Simon is married to Lucy Fleming, the daughter of Celia Johnson and the writer Peter Fleming, which means her uncle is the James Bond author, Ian Fleming, just in case you wondered. Now, unfortunately, the sound on this episode can vary in quality as we had to use two different recordings when one just... Well, just stopped. 
Isn't technology wonderful? Whilst at the same time being a bastard. Still, let's waste no more time and hear the delightful Simon Williams, or as his friends call him, Sam, and the things he'd like to put in his time capsule. Okay, Sam, <laughs> what would you like to put into the time capsule? Oh, my time capsule will need to be very, very big. Um, <laughs> I'd like to put in my time capsule, um, I don't know, all the usual things that everybody must mm. say, the lots of first kisses with the darling women who've been in my life, <laughs> obviously foremost Lucy, um, the birth of my children, some extraordinary moments of um, of good news when people have come round from difficult situations, have survived near deaths, mm. um, getting good reviews. Um, <laughs> um, but one of the most extraordinary moments was when I went to a clairvoyant uh, at the age of 18, mm. and she said to me, um, oh, how interesting, you're one of twins. And I said, uh, no, I think you've made a mistake there. I, I'm a Gemini, maybe you're muddled. She said, oh, that's odd. I mentioned it that night to my mother, and she said, oh, well, it's no big deal, but I miscarried um, your twin at four months. And as you know, you were premature. You were born at seven months. Wow. And um, so you should have had a little twin brother. And it was uh, the most extraordinary moment for me because suddenly this uh, phantom companion I'd had all my childhood, my sort of invisible buddy on my shoulder, was a possibility, was real, or or should have been real. Mm. And it really was an extraordinary moment in my life. Had you felt his presence all the time then, do you think? I I thought all children had a kind of um, a phantom, a a, a buddy who they shared things with, who played games with. But I actually had one. And (laughs) so um, I like to think that, if I'm a bit low ever, I, I think uh, uh, it could have been me who was slipped away and perished. Mm. And uh, so I've got to live life for him as well yes. as myself. Medically, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a long time ago, Sam. Yes. And so to, to miscarry a, a child at four months. So were you in separate parts of the womb or were you in the womb together? I, I didn't actually go into the details. Uh, okay. I mean... Um, but uh, suffice to say, my mother had a miscarriage and the doctor came the next day and said, oh, um, funny thing, there's still one there. You must have been having twins. And uh, the twin was me. So I feel very lucky that he sacrificed his space mm. within my darling mum <laughs> for me. That's all. <laughs> to survive. I know. He sort of remained with you as well, has he? Um it would be fanciful to say that he's there all the time. No. But I do reflect on how lucky I am and that um, I never feel that alone. No. It sounds a bit fanciful. I don't want to go too far no. down there, but <laughs> it was a very extraordinary moment. And other extraordinary moments I might put in my time capsule. I remember so many visits to my dad, who was the actor Hugh Williams, mm. in his dressing room. And I just remember thinking... Some people talk about acting, they fall in love with it, but I just fell in love with the building. There was a smell in the theatre that I just loved, a smell of um, he wore Leishner makeup Mm. and he 
smelt of uh, of Cravenay cigarettes, which he smoked, <laughs> and there was a smell of scenery and of old theatres and the musty smell, and he would take me out onto the stage and i just look at the empty theatres and they just oh, gladdened yeah. my heart, and I thought, this is where I really, really want to be. It's funny, isn't it, that actually quite often an empty theatre is more exciting. I've had so many, <laughs> <laughs> usually on matinee days in the middle of August. <laughs> yes, indeed, haven't we all? Do you know, I'm just going to pick you up on something. You pronounce it Lashner. I've always called it Leichner. Leichner. You would know more than I would. Leichner number five and number nine was what he always wore. Yeah. One was white and he'd mix them in for a healthy look. Yes. Leichner. Leichner. Yeah. Oh. And then there was... Uh, something called Crow's Cremine, which was the kind of cream you removed it with. <laughs> in the early days, uh, in rep, when I was in rep, they used, you used to put a red dot in the corner of your eye. Yes. Because it, it made you look sort of healthy and unanemic. <laughs> the old character actor I shared a dressing room with would teach me when you were playing older parts, you'd take a sixpenny piece and you'd mark it with the dark makeup to draw the lines on so they weren't continuous they were kind of slightly serrated uh, my early days in rep were just the happiest happiest time where did you do rep all over the place or? sort of um weekly rep i did in um worthing mm. under a wonderful director called malcolm farquhar and we did you know it, it was a play a week in those days yeah and you'd have a read through on tuesday morning you'd block act one in the afternoon Act two the following day. By Friday, you were doing a run-through. Monday, you did a dress rehearsal in the afternoon. And you opened in the evening. It was probably um, acting by the seat of your pants. It was all a little bit approximate. Yes. And obviously, there were a huge number of wonderful cock-ups. And, <laughs> but it was an adventure. And I was just oh, overjoyed to be in the building. And, of course, you were not only rehearsing during the day. You were performing at night. Uh, well, I was. But I, I was... I was I was also an assistant stage manager, so I was quite often on the prop book and making props and uh, rushing about the town, borrowing things needed for the production on my little, had a little tiny mobilette, it was called, oh. a little small motorbike. It was the happiest time. The, my honeymoon, the, my long romance with the theatre, it was the honeymoon. Yes. I mean, there is nothing better as a young man than being busy, is there, with something that you love? Yes, I mean, because... Um, you can sleep for five minutes on a stone floor and, and wake up completely ready to go again, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So your father, he must have worked with some extraordinary people because I always think that that journey that is made over just a very few generations that take you to people that almost seem mythical. Yes. These actors that are, you know, from way back. His career was, could have gone better. It was, his career was interfered with by the war and by um, by being divorced. And he had difficult decisions, as we all do in this business. We have difficult decisions to make. But he had lots of very dear friends in, in the theatre. Uh, Olivier was, was, was a wonderful friend of his. Really? He did the address at my father's memorial service. They did Wuthering Heights together. Wow. My father played the drunken um, brother, uh, Hinley, <laughs> and he worked with Michael Wilding in An Ideal Husband. He did lots of movies. He had sort of skirmishes with Hollywood. But then after he was bankrupted in um, about the early 50s, he took to writing plays with my mother, most notably plays like The Grass is Greener oh, and yeah. 
um, the flip side. And he was so all through my childhood, he was pretty much always in the West End doing drawing room comedies that he'd written with my mother. How marvellous. Yeah, that's how my childhood was. Mm. Mm. So you've sort of taken that on board, haven't you, really? You've, you've written a number of plays. Yes, I seem to be trudging wearily in my father's footsteps. <laughs> I, I, I love him to bits. You can probably see him up there. There's a picture of, of him and me doing a play. We he, It was a play he wrote. We only worked together once. A play he wrote when I was just newly married the first time. Mm. And he wrote a part and we did the play together. And uh, we had a fabulous time rehearsing it and with Gladys Cooper and Faith Brooke and my then wife, Belinda Carroll. And we had a wonderful tour. And sadly, when we came into London, he died uh, during the first week of the run. No. And so, um, um, well, it's sad, but it's also wonderful that I had the chance to work with him the once. Yes. And... Um, Having begged me not to be an actor, he had come round to the idea uh, and we just had the best time together. Yes. What did he do during the war then? That, he um, was in a communications um, group in the army called Phantom, which operated um, communications mostly in North Africa and in northern France. And um, he didn't talk about it much, but I know he travelled about with a chicken in the back of his Jeep <laughs> and he would trade the eggs for men's whiskey <laughs> he liked a whiskey and uh he was one of the first people in to belson at the cessation of hostilities and he uh he said he could never forgive and he never did forgive germany for the atrocity there no and it was it was always tricky i mean he would go into quite a rage at the sight of a german car <laughs> or the sound of a german conversation <laughs> on the beach it yes. was a problem for him i've come across a few people like that i worked with a barrister many years ago yeah he had his qc taken away his queen council because he chased a, a german car that cut him up on the strand <laughs> And, and this poor German was driving the car. And at the time, you could drive right round Trafalgar Square. You'll remember that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this poor German got so confused when they got to Trafalgar Square that he went the wrong way round Trafalgar Square, causing chaos. But this barrister <laughs> continued to chase him. Yeah, yeah. The war wasn't over for it him. It wasn't over for him. I think he was cited in the trial. as <laughs> They could hear him as he was going along behind, making noises. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like that with my dad, I'm afraid. Yes, there were a number like that. Oh, it's marvellous. Well, I mean, even though it's really tinged with that sadness of... Um... It was, it was, I suppose, one of the things I wouldn't want in my time capsule would be the memory of going on the night after he died oh. with the understudy. That was not very good, um, wearing my dad's clothes and speaking his lines. That was uh, a pretty horrible night. Yes, Oh, my word, that is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and that idea, yes, the show must go on, rather than everybody saying, well, your father's just died, don't do it. The show must go on is one of the great load of bollocks yeah. produced by producers to try and make actors play when they should be home in bed with a temperature or, or they should be h hugging their loved ones during a time of bereavement. The show must go on is nonsense. Yes, 
And yet we all fall for it. I did exactly the same thing when my mother died. The next day I was on stage. Yes. And halfway through it started singing a song, which was rather sad and about somebody going away. And and just, yeah. I couldn't even sing it. It was, uh, and I thought, what am I doing here? No. It's madness. I, I remember looking across the stage at Gladys Cooper and she was sounded absolutely fine and she looked great from a distance, but close up all through the performance, there were tears just rolling down her face. Uh, oh. She absolutely loved my dad, mm. and I loved her too. She was wonderful. Yes. But my childhood was littered with all sorts of uh, of my dad's friends, Jack Hawkins, John Mills, Valerie Hobbs. Valerie Hobson I was taken to meet. We went to see The King and I, mm. and I was taken around to meet her in her dressing room afterwards. And there, to my astonishment, she took off her hair, <laughs> and then she took off her hips, you know, those great big, huge bustle things she wore. Yes. And, I, and there she was standing in these knickerbockers and... <laughs> and beaming down at me with this grotesque makeup on, saying, hello, Simon, I've got a son called Simon too. And I thought, oh, love, love, love. No. <laughs> there was nothing else I could possibly do but work in the theatre. Yes, and then, of course, after that, your sex life was never the same again. Well, uh, that's another matter. <laughs> that's a late-night programme. <laughs> Indeed. OK, well, I'm going to put all those happy memories, but uh, maybe I'll just put that photograph of you and your father on stage. Yeah. Because that'll bring the whole thing back to you, I think. It, it was... It it was a, a very special first night we had together when we opened in Brighton with the play. Mm. Um, I didn't come on till the second act. He had to let me onto the stage and I came on in the most wonderful tailored suit. And it so happened that as I'd been in rep in Worthing up the road, a great many friends were in the audience. Mm. And as I came on in this suit, the audience gave me what they used to call an entrance round. Yeah. They started clapping. And my father gently turned his back to the audience and said, you little fucker, <laughs> with, with, his, with his back to the audience, with a beam on his face. And we then played the scene together. Oh, how marvellous. And it was a, a wonderful, uh, they call it rites of passage yeah, moment, yeah. but it was a lovely moment. I'd have that in my time capsule. Now. Yeah, that's fantastic. You little mm. fucker. <laughs> Should I say it again without fucker? No, I like it. I like it. I like the Okay, fucker. you can have fucker, can you? You can, can have that. Yes, I just, <laughs> it's marvellous. All I have to do is put a little E next to this episode and then we can get away with anything. Good, good, good. And also, it's so real. That's a father, in a way, demonstrating, you know, in a very amusing way, yeah. the pride that he must have felt, or the joy at that moment. He must have known the significance of it. It was especially poignant, the pride, yeah. because he had absolutely begged me not to be an actor. Says, look at me, here mm. I am, an undischarged bankrupt at 65, <laughs> you know, for God's sake, yes. find something else to do. Be a wine merchant, be a mechanic, be anything, but don't be an actor. Yes, I've been told that, but mostly by directors. <laughs> <laughs> no, you are actually informed to be an actor. <laughs> Sadly true. And a good one too. Okay, well, there we are. That's it. That's in the time capsule. That's lovely. What else would you like to put in there? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts, although it might just be silence. It's a fickle world. We'll be back in a second. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back. Right, let's pack up our adverts in our old kit bag and we won't dilly-dally on the way as we hurry back to find out what else Simon Williams would like to bury in his time capsule. Uh, am I overloaded already? No. I would just want a uh, video of the last 35 years I've spent with Lucy because uh, they've just been great fun. I mean, she's a really most wonderful person to spend time with, so I'd like to have that in my time capsule. I could watch it again and I could interrupt her and uh, <laughs> switch her off when necessary. And, um, we were great friends before we got together as Man, a woman, me, the man. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, don't be stupid. Um, and so, I think a, a marriage based on friendship, firstly, is rather a rather a good foundation. Really, yeah, he's my best friend. Did you do a play together first of all, or a television? We did the first play we did together, Lucy and I was was Hay Fever with her mother Celia Johnson mm. back in nineteen sixty uh, seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. And somehow I, I felt instantly head over heels in love with her. But there comes a, a point where you have to mention this to someone. Yes. You have to say, oh, actually, I'm crazy about you. But I kind of missed the moment. And we became very good friends. We were always, uh, you know, Celia and she in the cast, we were all going out together. And I thought, okay, fine, I'll just have to, I'll just have to be her friend. Yes. And, uh, and we were friends. I went to her wedding and I was godfather to her eldest daughter and uh and it was only 10 years later when we were both in marriages that were unsuccessful mm-hmm. or not working at the time that we got together in a not in a kind of splendid kind of first love kind of way but in a kind of rather tail between the legs kind of way <laughs> so um we had a very quiet quiet wedding in the registry mm-hmm. office with her two boys and her son and daughter and uh they weren't paying any attention. Now, halfway through, I heard one of them say, can't we go to Smith's now? <laughs> but there was a very special moment. Very romantic, yes. <laughs> mm, yeah, romantic as romantic does, you know. Yes, mm. I like your sort of romance. I mean, I know you are a romantic man, but I like the fact that you poo-poo it. Yes, you know. I think another moment I might have to have. Shall I ramble on with my, my capsule? My capsule is already huge. 
Okay, but I am noting the fact that you're poo-pooing my uh, my offer to examine your character. Good, good, good. Beautifully poo-pooed. <laughs> I'm just going to let you put anything you want in there, and I'm, <laughs> because I think they're all delightful. I, th- I think the two occasions I've both my 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 son Tam and my daughter Amy followed me into the theatre, mm. and. Uh, in their case, on their mother's side, they are sixth generation show business. Wow. And it was just great working. I, I, I've, done, I've done quite a lot of work with my son, Tam. And, um, and he, having gone the proper route of acting, having been to drama school, actually knows how to do it, knows the process. I've learned, I think, probably more from him <laughs> than I did from my father, who just seemed to have picked it up as he went along after Raga. Mm. And, uh, sharing gigs with him on the road. We did a production of Tartuffe together and I somehow became his butler on the road. Yes. I would have to say, um, here's your key. It's time to get up. We've got a matinee today. He'd go, oh, <laughs> Dad, leave me. And then I wrote a play called Nobody's Perfect, which was quite a big success. And um, there was a part of a grumpy young daughter that this, the main character had, a character that I had to play. And the, Andy De La Tour, who directed it, said, um, we're auditioning for the young girl. Don't you think your daughter should audition? And I said, well, I hadn't thought of it. He said, isn't it based on her? And I said, yeah, I suppose it is. Anyway, she auditioned, and of course she was wonderful, and she got the part. And we had a wonderful time. <laughs> yes, the sixth generation carrying on. When would that go back to? Is that the, like as far back as the 18th century then? Yes, um, however many greats ago they were on my first wife's mother's side, they went back to touring managers and then they owned a string of theatres in South Sea and Portsmouth and, uh, you know, they went r- right back. So your father saying to you, I don't think you should become an actor, was almost absurd. You were destined to become an actor. Yes, I, I really don't know why he bothered to put himself in so much debt to get me to go to a public school. And All, all I really wanted was to be put into a, um, a suitcase and taken on tour, really. Yes. Education was completely wasted on me. <laughs> I hated all the teachers I had. I hated boarding school. I hated being away from the dog and the family. Mm. The teachers after the war, for the most part, were very, very cross, angry, bad-tempered people who seemed to hate children and hate the subjects they were teaching. Their life had been ruined sort of by the war, and they came out yes, of the war. Yeah, they were. Yes. They were all scarred and limping and damaged and just bullies, really. Yes. I look at the way children are educated today, and it's so full of excitement and adventure and exploration, and they come home eager to get online and find out about stuff, and I missed all that. I just wanted to get out of school and be a grown-up, and, you know, I didn't want to live with just boys my age. No. Still don't, really. (laughs) (laughs) No. It's very strange, isn't it, that thing? Because I do remember those teachers as well, all of whom had, to a large extent, I suppose, getting through the war, they probably suffered in order to get through it. You know, they went through something traumatic, and there was never any help for those people. And they they let it out of themselves by getting a revenge on the children they were teaching. I mean, imagine being able to hit... I mean, the number of times I was hit over the head, mm. I before E except after C and all that rubbish, and mm. nine eights and 72, and bang, 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 and bang, my little pink national health spectacles would fly across the room. You know, they were just 
ghastly. Some people would say you still remember those things. So <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. I, I still have to look it up, but I've got Google. When I had my first book published twenty odd years ago, my copy editor said someone damaged you terribly. All you seem to be worried about is whether I'm going to correct your spelling. I don't care about your spelling. Anyone can spell. Yes. What you could do is write a story. Yeah. And I went, oh, right. Somebody should have told me that. A long time ago. Indeed. Yeah, a long time ago. Put a great red line across my best writing. Very painful to me. Yes. I think I'm probably nowadays happier as a writer than I am as an actor. Mm. You know. That thing of um, of somebody not recognising something in what you're trying to do when you're a child is very painful, isn't it? Mm. And it does stick with you. We had a writing competition in my English class where the title of the, the essay was Why I Like Going Up to Bed. And I wrote a long piece about looking at the stars and how wonderful it was and how, but occasionally in the winter it was terribly cold and, and it, it, it seemed absurd. And then I mm. said, um, but the real reason that I enjoy it going upstairs to bed is because I live in a bungalow. <laughs> and so you had a lousy sense of humour even then. Even then. Even then I was after the poor joke. A very good joke. And the teacher put a red line right through the whole thing. Oh, I would have given you ten out of ten. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think I think the the sheer wonder of seeing a child begin to achieve something, anything is just tremendous. I feel so sorry for the kids today, especially with these hideous mess they're making of the education department at the moment. Mm. I just feel very sorry for kids who don't know where they want to go or what they want to do. They don't believe in the future. They don't believe that the world's going to go on. No, it's, it's awful, isn't it? And yet you constantly see the opposite, which is, you know, for example, we both have grandchildren and we like spending time with our grandchildren. Yeah, and, yeah. and then constantly things happen to them that you just, they, they make your heart burst with joy. Yes, yes, absolutely burst. Yeah, I think it's even more miraculous than being a father, being a grandfather. I mean, you kind of feel, oh, I can go now, you know. Yes. I don't want to go now. I don't. I don't. <laughs> you don't have to. Not immediately after this interview. No, good, You're good. not getting a flight to uh, Switzerland. Don't worry. Think of the money you'd make with that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I should make these recordings and then wait and make every one of them posthumous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. The posthumous mm. podcast. Mm. You just do a lot of recordings and then wait for people to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you could call it, waiting for people to die. <laughs> Uh, there's my well, other hero up on the wall there yes Dickie Attenborough did you work with Dickie? I never worked with him but I was involved with Denver Hall the actors retirement home with him and what used to be the actors children's trust and uh, lots of theatrical charities with him and he was uh, he was just a sensational man of, uh, what are they called a role model just a role model of how to be of service he believed in being of service, of paying back, all that stuff. Richard Curtis is one today, for instance. Yes. He was of his generation. God bless him. Mm. Yes. A lot of them were like that, though, uh, as far as I remember. They had a view of the world, which was the way society worked, was that it was up to you to pay back. But in, in, in the days before there was a formal taxation system, the norm was that you would simply give 10% of your income to the church. And they would dispense it to cover 
doctor's fees and education and looking after the local community. But the, the great problem is that there are all these people now that have these extraordinary sums of money and actually don't see it as their duty or they don't feel the need to help other people. They sort of say, well, it's fine. Yes. Um, the redistribution of wealth, the levelling up of the playing field is taking a long time to happen. Yes. I mean, we have people drowning, crossing the channel to try to get to the land of milk and honey that they think our country is. Mm. I don't know how long it will take to put that right or if we ever will. No. We must not get too philosophical here. No, indeed. Let's not get too depressed about it either because no. if, if anything, like all these things, it's not going to be up to you and I. No, well, maybe you a bit. <laughs> Somebody younger is going to come up with a brilliant idea and suddenly the world will seem much simpler. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is to capitalism. It, it, yeah, don't know. No. And you look at your share portfolio and you think, now maybe I'll leave it as it is. <laughs> I don't look at mine. I look at yours. <laughs> uh, okay, right. So we do have to put something into the time capsule that you're happy to get rid of from your life. I'm happy to get rid of. Um, against all odds, because I'm very squeamish, I did a uh, the poo test for bowel cancer about six years ago, and um, they caught a bit of cancer in my colon. Yes. Good and early. And I um, I still seem to be clear of the damn thing. And um, I would like the whole episode of, of that time in my time capsule. Yes. I'd like when they tell you that you're going to have to have a bit of your gut removed. I'd like that removed. But I would like mm. to leave a little message, a little post-it to the world saying, if you get the test, do it. Do you know what? I sit here as a man who's had that test sitting on his desk for about three months. So I'm, well, I'm not going to do it now, not in front of you. No, I would hate that. I wouldn't want to watch that. No. I've right. seen your work. I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but I am definitely going to do it today at some point. Yes. yes. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. I don't know what it is about, well, about me. What is it about me to not do that? It's fear. It's fear. Yes. Anyway, um, I was trying to think of other things I didn't want in my time capsule. No, it's um, fine. One is enough. One that's that's enough. One is one is yeah. good enough for me. Good, good. Uh, let's go through it. You had your twin. Uh, then there's yes. the photograph of you mm. and your dad together on stage. Um, um, you had your life with Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing on a video, <laughs> and then of course working with your son Sam and uh, your daughter Amy. Mm. And then the bad thing, which is uh, your poo test. So, yeah, I think we've done it. Good, good. God bless. Love to the family. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Simon Williams. This was a cast-off production, and the producer was John Fenton-Stevens. The music is by Pass the Peas Music. You can follow My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. You just search at MyTCPod. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe on Acast or your usual podcast provider, where you can rate us and maybe leave a review. And you can listen to all past episodes of My Time Capsule. In fact, there are very nearly 100 episodes available. Well done us. 
Yeah, Simon, it's episode 97, so we've only three episodes to go. So, subscribe now to hear our special 100th episode, as well as guests such as Stephen Fry, Rebecca Front, Arthur Smith, Mark Gatiss, Anna Tuzinski, Rufus Hound, Anthony Head, Chris Addison, David Bedeal, Maria McCurlin, the Reverend Richard Coles, Lucy Porter, Justin Edwards. Yes, I am going to do them all, so you can skip forward if you want to. But if you want to hear the rest, here we go. Griffiths Jones, Andy Hamilton, Richard Herring, Tony Gardner, Rachel Koo, Janet Ellis, Miles Jupp, Paul Mayhew Archer, Natasha McAlone, Ahia Shah, Danny Waters, Judy Graham, John Lloyd, Steve Edge, Rick Wakeman, Rita Rudner, Lynn Truss, Craig Ferguson, Ellie White, Russell Grant, Tom Goodman Hill, Tony Hawks, Kevin McNally, Clive Mantle, David Mitchell, Annika Rice, Catherine Mayer, Robert Bathurst, Jan Ravens, John Chalice, Jay Griffiths, Tim McInerney, Jimmy Mulville, Stephen K. Amos, Michael Maloney, David Jason, that's Sir David Jason, and Dan Schreiber. That's the first 50. Here we go. Athena Kublenu, Danny Wallace, Shane Ritchie, Arabella Weir, Milton Jones, Dune McKegan, Andrew Hunter-Murray, Ailey Doyle, Fred McCauley, John Owen Jones, Rory McGrath, Jade Adams, Andy Osho, Lee Mack, Kevin Bishop, Robin Ince, Clive Anderson, Caroline Quinton, Vicky Pepperdine, Mark Thomas, Nigel Planer, Rachel Paris and Marcus Brigstock, Tim Bentink, Mark Watson, Aurora Burkhart, Sean Walsh, Darren Litton, Anna Chancellor, Chris Lang, Ed Byrne, Romola Gary, Tim Vine, Izzy Mant, Howard Goodall, Giles Paley Phillips, Rob Bryden, Kate Thornton, Ken Bruce, Simon Evans, Charlie Hickson, Josie Lawrence, John Bradley West, James Moore, Les Dennis, Alex Lowe, Bonnie Langford, and now Simon Williams. Not bad, is it? Next week we've got... Oh, bloody technology. Technology. 